All right, well, let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed to us all that we need to know, to know you, to grow, to do anything you command us. Father, we can't ever say that we don't have the grace because you didn't tell us enough. And so we pray that you would help us to understand that, to know that, but also, Lord God, to not put laws where you have not put them, to not make conclusions where you have not given us uh, the answer. Father, there are many things also that we would like to know that your word doesn't satisfy us, but again, it satisfies us as far as what we need to know. So help us to be wise this morning to make those distinctions. Help me, Lord God, to not go too far or to not go far enough, but most of all, give us wisdom, Lord God. Give us fear of you, that we would love your word, that we would seek to walk by it in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I thought to start, I got a couple things in the emails, so I could do that real quick while you're thinking and maybe prime the pump, also to delay Mr. Baker over there a little bit. Um, Sometimes we'll get get questions like this. Um, This is one um, that uh, I received, and it's, it's, it's uh, symbolic or emblematic of other similar type questions where there are some manuscript difficulties, okay? Maybe you're familiar with this one. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 22, verse 2 says, Ahaziah was 42 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. All right, so Ahaziah was 42 years old when he became king. He reigned one year. Second Kings 8.26. If you're familiar, much of the Chronicles um, redoes and retells the accounts in the Kings with different details. But here we have a problem. Second Kings 8.26. Ahaziah was 22 years old. When he became king and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. So one little addition, Omri is the king of Israel from what Second Chronicles says. Of course, I'm sort of doing this backwards. Kings comes first in the canon of scripture, both in the Hebrew canon and in the um, Gentile canon, if I can say it that way. Um, so... Second Kings says Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king. Second Chronicles says he was 42. Okay, obviously there's a difference. He can't be both. This can't be, well, they co-regency with your father. And sometimes that's the answer to some of these things. If you look in the um, Hebrew uh, apparatus, in the actual Hebrew texts, in the um, BHS, the Biblical Hebraica Stuttgartensia, which is the scholarly Hebrew scriptures, they have all sorts of critical apparatus notes, and you'll see that there, this is noticed, this is known by translators. Uh, the Jews believe that there was a, a, uh, uh, an error of orthography in the copying of manuscripts, and the 42 of Second Chronicles should be 22. The Septuagint, which goes back before Christ, especially in the historical books, closer to 300 B.C., but some of the Septuagint not until 100 B.C., at least as far as extant manuscripts. Uh, The Septuagint actually says 22. The Septuagint makes the correction that some of the Jewish uh, scribes say should be made. 
Uh, and uh, there um, may be uh, some Hebrew manuscripts in the Samaritan Pentateuch and, and other things that also do the same. But I know the, he, the uh, Septuagint does. So, yes, in our English translations, Ahaziah in Second Chronicles was 42 years old when he became king. In Second Kings, he was 22 years old. Everything else in the verse, though, in the verses, you know, he, be, he reigned one year in Jerusalem. That's word for word, both verses. His mother's name was Athalia, granddaughter of Omri. All the details are right. And I mean, are, are exactly the same in both accounts. Second King adds that Omri was the king of Israel. Chronicles doesn't because he was and they don't need to say it. But the, the discrepancy of 42 and 22 uh, is to be explained by one of them is in error. Remember, the, the doctrine of inerrancy is not that our English translations, as we have them, are without error. It's that the doctrines in their original manuscripts are without error, and occasionally a copyist error can get in. So this would be one of those occasions. Second Chronicles is, and, and the way we would say, the reason why we say Second Kings is right and Second Chronicles is wrong, if you recall the story, when Ahaziah is killed... Uh, he has a couple of children, which would have easily been possible if he was 22 years old because they married very early in, uh, in the ancient uh, Near East, um, especially if they were wealthy and, and royalty. I mean, a 16-year-old could have a couple of children, a uh, prince, you know, not unheard of. But um, Athalia takes all of the children and grandchildren and the whole line of David, remember, and, and she kills them all. And Ahaziah had a son, Josh, who was very young, like a, a baby. If he's 22 years old, that makes sense. If he's 42 years old, you know, his sons would have been much, much older, not these little children that she murdered. Uh, so uh, the, the copyist error is in Chronicles, not in Second Kings, all right? Um, let me give you one other one, and then I'll take some questions from the crowd. This one I got it from email also. I'm going to read the question because it's, um, it's more detailed and it's more practical application, um, which is more difficult uh, to answer. Um, so let me just read that. Uh, uh, I'm in an industry that is 85% or more populated by homosexuality. How do I love these people well, but stand in my belief that God's word says homosexuality is a sin? I have an opportunity to be salt and light, and I feel such a burden to represent our God well. I also worry someone will ask me if I think being gay is wrong. I do, but my stock answer feels something like I believe the Bible is God's word, and he is telling us how we should live for our good, and the Bible clearly says homosexuality is wrong. I want them to ask, but my answer feels very wobbly. I don't wish to be wishy-washy. That helps no one. I want to be more obviously Christian, but still be loving and serving people. And I like this question because it really gets all the details that we all feel, especially in an issue like this, all right? Because everybody's facing this nowadays. Everybody has, you know, or knows somebody who claims to be gay. Um, and how do I, you know, deal with that? Uh, let me just give a couple of things from the outset. Sometimes it's easier to begin with what we are to not do. Okay, it's easier to know what I'm not to do than to try to really flesh out what to do. So what can't you do? You can't compromise. You can't compromise your faith. You can't compromise the word of God. That's something you can't do. You can't compromise what God tells you to do, which is 
to love, you know, your spouse, your family members, you love your neighbor, you love your enemy. So you do owe this person love, whatever sin they're in. Okay? So you can't compromise in any of these ways. You can't lie as a Christian. I'm not saying that Christians don't do these things. They do. We compromise. That's wrong. We lie. That's wrong. But I'm saying what's the right thing to do, right? Um, you can't lie. You can't call evil good. You can't call good evil. You can't pretend like it's okay that they're gay and God loves them anyway, you know. Um, there's a sense in which, yes, the benevolent love of God is even on the vilest sinner, but God hates sin and he's going to destroy them in hell if they don't repent, whether they're homosexual or anything else. So you can't lie. You can't hate. You can't hate the person. I think that we can respond that way in Christian circles, especially evangelical circles, right? And we can hate them in a couple different ways. You can condemn them. You're going to hell. You're, you know, you're condemned. It's funny, Jesus doesn't condemn people. He says at one point, neither do I condemn you. Um, there is a time when he's going to come and he's going to judge, but the first time he came, he didn't come in judgment. He came telling people to repent, believe the gospel, be saved. That's what we tell people. We don't condemn because it's not judgment day yet and we're not the judge. There's a sense in which you never condemn anybody. If they're living, they could still be saved, right? So you don't condemn the person. You don't be unfair to them, right? You don't, well, I'm not, you know, I can't sit beside them at the bus, on the bus or whatever, or I can't give them, you know, cake if I'm, if I'm the lunch person because, you know, they're claiming to be gay. Um, you know, do that with any other sin. Well, the person's living with someone. I, you know, I'm going to treat them different. The person is an inveterate cusser <laughs> or whatever. Everybody is in some sin, Okay. And you don't treat them unfairly because of that. But you also don't join yourself to the person and act like there's no issue. Oh, this person's my best friend. He's gay. Um, that's not loving them either. That's actually hating them. To accept and pretend like their sin is not a sin. All right, so um, trying to outline the things you can't do. You can't act out of fear for yourself. You can't not act out of fear for yourself. Well, I don't want to say anything because I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me. That's never our position. Um, we can't be afraid of the consequences of doing the right thing, and then that determines whether or not we do the right thing. We're called to do the right thing. But the question is trying to ask, what is the right thing? And I'm just outlining the parameters that we should know, in, in a sense intuitively, but it helps to explicitly state them. All right? Um, so, um, we are required to love all people according to our relationship. Husbands, love your wives, but you don't love your neighbor's wife the same way, right? There's a, different, there's a difference in relationship. Our, our duties change as our relationships, right? My kids don't have the same relationship to somebody else's parents as they do to me, okay? Now that my kids are grown, that, that's even different, but... Um, so, according, so we love all people according to our relationship and according to our position, but that means a different kind of love, right? You don't love your neighbor the same way you love your enemy, the same way you love your wife, but you are required to love all in that relationship in a way that's appropriate, okay? Same thing with the parent-child. Um, parents relate different to, differently to their young children as they do to their older children, and that's appropriate. So love uh, is required, but love seeks a person's true good, 
Not a person's happiness in that they don't feel bad anymore, right? Not the pleasure of an act. You know, homosexuality is pleasurable. That's why people do it. Uh, and nobody likes to have their feelings hurt and to be condemned, and nobody likes confrontations, but it's not necessarily loving to avoid those things, okay? Uh, another thing you're not to do is don't try to be the Holy Spirit. I think this is really important. I, I think we feel this as Christians, right? It's not your job to call out every sin that everyone has. Do you do that with other sins? Wait a minute, you just swore... You just said a swear word. I'm a Christian. Stop it. You know? You just lied. Stop lying. I mean, what would we do if we did that with every sin? You know, you don't, you're not called to do that. You're not called to expose every sin. You're not the Christian police officer. Uh, and I think we put that burden on ourselves. Okay? We can all do this. You know, we see someone sitting and, oh, I should say something. Do you do that with every sin that any time, you know, again, you would never stop doing that. And I don't see Jesus doing that in his life. And remember, Jesus was without sin and could see every sin. And every time everybody, anyone opened their mouth, there was sin. Whether it was a true statement or not, they said it with sinful desires and selfishness. So Jesus would have never got done doing anything but talking about everybody's sin all the time. All right, so you're not the Holy Spirit's police force. You're not called to call out every sin, to expose every sin. You're not the minister. There's a certain sense in which my job when I talk to somebody as a minister is different than yours. And, and think about that in society, right? I'm not a police officer. It's not right for me in society to act like one. I may, it might be on, my duty to try to help someone who's in need, but even then I don't help them as a police officer would, right? There's a, there's a relationship that we have to society there's, that we have to remember uh, you're not in church when you're at work. You're with unbelievers. You should expect them to be like unbelievers. Okay? Um, we don't operate the same way with unbelievers as we do with Christians because they, they're not our brothers and sisters in that sense, right? Um, what if somebody personally offends you who's not a believer? Okay, and I see this, and I'm, I'm talking about this in, in the greater context of this sin of homosexuality. Uh, well, what, you know, uh, first of all, love covers a multitude of sins. You know, we don't make a big deal out of every little thing. We hear that somebody gossip about us. Okay, we pray for them that God would, you know, um, cause them not to do that. But we still want to treat them well and treat them good. You know, pray for those who persecute you, love those who hate you, do good to those who violently oppose you. Do not return reviling for reviling, but rather a blessing. That's always our duty. You can't do a Matthew 18 with somebody when they're not a believer. I mean, I think the principles still apply. If it's appropriate, you do go to a person who's offended you, and you say, hey, this was wrong, this offended me, and you appeal to them as a fellow human being. Uh, and you can do that to a certain degree, but at a certain point, you know, you can't bring the church in because they have no place in the church. All right? So I'm just noticing that. Um, you're not called, therefore, to make the truth known in every situation, in every kind of sinful um, error. And your first job at work is to do your job. Don't forget that. I've worked in many Christian ministries where people will go down to the prayer room and they'll be praying and not doing their job. 
And the rest of us have to pick up the slack because, oh, they're praying, you know. We don't want to get, get into the hyper-spiritual mode of, well, my job at work is to go and get everybody saved. My job at work is to do my job. And if I'm a carpenter, it's to be a good carpenter. If I have an opportunity to witness to somebody, that's good. But I better not do that and not do my job. Then it's actually not right. It's wrong to tell someone about Jesus if you're supposed to be speaking something on the air as a radio DJ that's, you know, a sponsor has paid you to speak about. You're supposed to do your job. So don't, you know, don't forget that. Uh, I think, again, we could put this burden on ourselves. Oh, I've got to be Jesus at work and I've got to save everybody and I've got to stop everybody from sinning. And that's not your job. Your job is to do your job. If you can't do your job and be a Christian then you can't take that job, right? You can't work in a pornography store, okay? You can't do that and be a Christian. But if it's a job that you can do and be a Christian, then that's your responsibility not to fix all the sinners that you're working with. And again, I'm just trying to get you what you're not to do at the beginning here. Um, I think, Again, you need to expect that every non-Christian you work with is a slave to some sin. It may not be homosexuality, but they are in slavery to some sin. That's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Believers are not in slavery to any sin. We commit sins of every kind, except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which we can't commit. But every other kind of sin, believers actually do commit. The difference is they're not in bondage to those things. The homosexual is in bondage. So is the gossip. So is the liar. So is the cusser. Um, so is the rude person. So, you know, you've got to keep that in mind. Every non-Christian that you work with is in slavery to some sin. Um, all Christians still sin, but we're not a slave to sin. And so, and so we don't justify and defend it. We should confess and try to turn from our sins. The unbeliever is not going to do that. They're not going to confess and try to turn from what they love. Whatever it is, they think that's who they are. That's a good thing. We don't really think about it in, in, in identifying terms that way. And it's not as explicitly done as the homosexual sin because few people will come to you and say, Hi, I'm John. I'm a gossip. You know, but they might say, I'm a homosexual. But it's the same thing in the sense that I'm identifying by a sinful practice, sinful way of thinking. Sinful way of living. I'm making that my identity. Wow, that's a big deal. That's really bad. When you're actually saying that's who you are. You know, I'm a, we do that in, uh, with our occupations, right? I'm a carpenter. I'm a marketer. I'm a lawyer. The Bible does that. He was a fisherman. It identifies people by their occupation. It never identifies people by their sexual preference. That's not who you are. Um, so that's why like, when I say this, you know, he, you know, the person is claiming to be. My, my default position with a homosexual person is, first of all, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as a homosexual. There's never been, there never will be. There's no such thing as a gay person. There's no such thing. There's a person who is allowing and even enjoying the fact that he desires a kind of sexual attraction that the Bible says is unnatural and perverted. But that's not who he is. He is not that. That's what he does. And he doesn't do it all the time. You're not always desiring sex, right? So you don't do it all the time. Um, and you can inhibit it. 
Just as a person who is, quote-unquote, heterosexual can inhibit the fact that he desire, a man desires a woman. I don't have to desire a woman all the time. And I can inhibit my desires for women who are not my wife. I can do that. And so can the person who claims to be homosexual. He can inhibit his desires for a person of the same sex. He can do that. Right? The little boy in the room, you know, with a pornographic magazine masturbating... When he hears mom, all of a sudden he can stop. Right? So can the person who's trying to rape somebody when the policeman comes around the corner. Suddenly they're not desiring sex anymore. Um, we have the ability to do that. That's just a big, big lie. This is who I am. I can't help it. No, it's not. You can help it. You help it many times. And the idea of being born with sexual desire is actually scientifically absolutely false. There is no sexual desire in children until a certain age. It's not possible to have it. Just as children can't smile when they're newborn. The muscles in their face haven't developed yet until a month or two. I don't even know what it is. When they look like they're smiling, that's gas. It's not, you know, a month-old baby simply physically is unable to smile. And in sexually, you're unable to have desires. Until a certain point. It's not possible. So to say I was always gay since I was born is just a big fat lie. Not possible. No sexual desire in any human being until a certain point. So that's why I say there is no such thing. All right. But they're identifying this way. So that, that's a big deal. Because that's, that's saying this is who I am. And that's why it's so difficult for us as Christians, right, to try to witness to somebody. To say, no, that's not who you are. How dare you say who I am. That's what you get into, and that's what this person is wrestling with. That's why it's so hard to try to answer this question. Um, the unbeliever, again, is in bondage to sin. Now, we are to be in the world, so you've got to deal with unbelievers who are in bondage to sin. The Bible never says to go into the monastery, to go into the, you know, be secluded. Don't let unbelievers get around you. We are to be in the world. Go into the world. But we are not to be of the world, right? We are not to take on the world's moral values. We are not to act like the world. We are not to treat the people like the world treats us. I think the first and foremost thing that you need to do when you are dealing with this kind of sin or anything else is remember that your first duty is to the Lord about yourself, your conduct, your words, your thoughts, your behavior, that's my duty. My duty is to represent God well in my thoughts, words, and behaviors before I even begin to think about another person. What I'm called to do and what I'm responsible for and what I can control is how I think about people, how I speak, and how I act. And I'm never allowed to do so with hatred, with condemnation, with belittling, with any kind of sinful attitude. Proud, selfish, condemning Everyone I should see, I should love as a fellow human being who I pray will be saved. Everyone, right? So, in my personal conduct, I think there's some things that we can notice. Um, to be wise as serpents, but to be innocent as doves. I think when Jesus says that, that's talking about living in the world. That's, that's something we want to do. To be wise as serpents, to be innocent as doves. So, innocent as doves, you don't get that on you. You don't, again, pretend like it's okay, be friends with all the gay people because look how loving I am. Uh, and they just love me because I make them feel good because I pretend like everything they're doing is good. 
that's not right either. Innocent as doves, you can't go along with sin. Jesus, you know, I always get Jesus ate with sinners. Yes, but he called them to repentance and those who didn't repent left him. Clearly, over and over again in the scripture, they didn't be around. Him. The ones who did repent, yes, they stayed with him. But he didn't mince words. Go and call your husband. I don't have a husband. Yeah, you've had five. And the man you now have is not your husband. You're having him, but you're not married to him. That's not hiding things, is it? That's not, well, I wanted to be my buddy, so I don't want to offend him. You know, uh, so we got to watch out for that. And it's easy to do that. And then we feel good and they feel good. And the only thing that's wrong is that we're sinning against God. And I hope that convicts us and we don't feel good while we're feeling good, if I can say that. But by the same token, you don't, you know, belittle the person. You don't, you know, again, hate the person. You don't, um, you're wise as serpents. When you've got to think about that. Um, one way to do this, again, just looking at yourself before you get to the other person, you don't curse you should be a person who cusses at work. These are easy things, right? You shouldn't be laughing at dirty jokes or telling dirty jokes. You shouldn't be gossiping when other people are gossiping. You shouldn't be lying and changing your time card. You know, you should be on time. And if you're not on time, you should say, you know, get all this honesty upright. Um, and uh, don't allow false guilt to come on you. Don't allow Satan to put on you the lostness of others. As I've said before, you're not the Holy Spirit. It's not your job to convert people. You are to testify to the truth. Homosexuality is against human nature. We know that. Um, there's a natural shame that can't be fully overcome. And I think that's why you have this desire um, expressed the, the way it is. So um, I think you've got to go into it knowing this, that there's a, there's a sense in which the person knows what they're doing is wrong with the sin of homosexuality. I think Romans 1 shows that. It's against nature. That's why you have this, this pride. We've got to express pride. We've got to force it on others. If you read about Lot in Genesis 19, do you remember what they say about him? When he says, brothers, don't do this. Don't act wickedly like this. Who made you a judge over us? The very thing they say today. Stop judging me. So that's always going to be the case. So I think... Um, when it comes to these kinds of sins, you should think about it as another religion. I am a Buddhist. I am a homo. Same thing. I am living in a, I am, I'm embracing a truth that's wicked. I'm a homosexual. I'm a Buddhist. I'm a gangster. Right? My lifestyle is wicked. I am a false religionist. I am a false moralist. Uh, but remember, they can't really find true satisfaction in that sin. No matter how much pleasure they get out of it, they're still hurting themselves. And that's the lie of homosexuality. Pleasure is not peace. Pursuing, pursuing desires is not pursuing happiness. So I think you need to pray. I think you need to be, I'm trying to wrap it up now. Here's the things you need to do. You're not going to be happy in that. I don't have it all worked out, but you need to pray for the person. Pray that God will convict them that they will be saved. That's what we should pray for all unbelievers in their sins. Be the best employee that you can. In front of them, that's a part of your witness. Be equally kind and just to all. Do not further their sin in any way. When it comes to that particular sin and your conversation with them, you can't affirm it. I'm not saying you call it out. If it's appropriate, then, then, then maybe you go there. But I think it needs to be appropriate. 
And you don't just, you know, come out condemning the sin of homosexuality. There needs to be an appropriate way to do that. There needs to be a context. You practice your faith in appropriate ways at work, appropriate ways, that you're not gold-bricking. Putting Christ first, talking about church, the Bible, living for God. And I think 1 Peter 3.15 would be my final thing. Always be ready to make a defense for everyone who asks you a reason for the hope. But notice it's for everyone who asks you. Peter doesn't say, always go around and tell everybody. I think we, we should be looking at it that way. And it's hard because you see these people in this sin and they're hurting themselves, but you can't fix it unless I think without, you know, the context of the person actually having a prompting in themselves of, of wanting to know the truth and then you tell them the truth as, as well as you can. This is what the Bible says. And I think I would go right to what that person said. That is a good answer. The Bible says homosexuality is a sin and God made us. And it says you're never going to find happiness in this sin. And I'm sure you recognize that at certain levels. You know, so uh, that's what I would do. All right, so I'm going to open it up now. Wow, if you used half, half the class. So um, what do we have, uh, Brandon? Good. Okay, so the canon would be the actual books that we believe are Scripture, 66 books, uh, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. The Jews have 22 in the Old Testament, the exact same books as the Protestant canon. It's just that, you know, First and Second Kings is one book of the Jews. First and Second Chronicles is one book. The 12 minor prophets is one book in the Jewish canon. So that's how you get from 39 to 22. But all the books are the same, different order. All right, so... With the Old Testament, um, um, we have, um, you know, to just cut to the chase, uh, Jesus talks about the scriptures, that they cannot fail, that they cannot err, that not a jot or tittle will pass from the word. And we know at the time of Christ, it was the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Katuvim, the Tanakh, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. So Jesus affirms the, the Old Testament canon. So really, in a sense, we don't have to do an all the work there. I mean, we could go look and see how that, and I could show you where Moses goes to the Jews in Egypt, and, and he says, well, what, you know, what if they don't believe me? And he does those miracles which prove he's the word of God, and I would show you, I think I can show you that miracle proves the uh, speaker is sent from God, and therefore, when he says, thus says the Lord, you are obligated to believe him. God never causes people to believe without showing that testimony. When Elijah's on Mount Carmel and the Baal, prophets of Baal, Elijah doesn't say, just believe because I said so and I'm a prophet. He says, let's see who has the power of God. Let's see who can call it on fire. So God proves himself over and over again. Then you see that in the Old Testament and you see it in the New. Um, and again, Jesus would be the uh, one who's, who promises to send the Holy Spirit to, to, to remind them of all the things I've said to you. Look in the Gospel of John 14 to 17, those chapters in the upper room where Jesus promises another helper. He will bring to your mind all the things I've said to you. He will keep you from error. And so Christ assures that the apostles will write the truth. And, um, and so we have the, the three criteria of the canon. Um, it has to be, uh, it, that, that is, how do we know it's the word of God? And, and the Protestant principle is this. We didn't determine the word. We didn't vote the word. There wasn't some council where, okay, these people say this is a, the Bible and these people say it's not and there's more people on this side. So this book's biblical, but this book's not, right? John's biblical, but the gospel of Thomas is not. And we have these votes, no. Um, there was three criteria. It had to be apostolic. 
because Jesus ensured that the apostles would write his word. The apostles are the New Testament prophets writing the word of God. Jesus said they would do it without error. And they did the miracles of Christ. So much so that Simon tries to give money. Remember in Acts 8, make it so that whoever I lay hands on can do all these things. So they saw the miracles that the prophets did, or the apostles did, that proved that they were the spokesmen of God just as much as, as the Old Testament prophets. And so it had to be apostolic. It had to agree with the rest of Scripture. You couldn't look at what was already known to be Scripture, and then it contradicts something. So, for example, the Shepherd of Hermas was a book written in the early uh, second century. And for a time, some Christians thought maybe this is Scripture. The problem is the shepherd of Hermas says you can only be forgiven post-baptismal sins once. That's not biblical. Okay? Written by a godly person, really good stuff in there, worth reading. Right? Um, just like today. You can buy a book by Ted Tripp or R.C. Sproul or J.I. Packer. Worth reading, not scripture. They had books like that too. And some of those books they wrestle with. But, so that had to be apostolic. It had to agree with scripture. And then it had to be universally accepted. So, you know, where a book was not accepted maybe in this region, it was over here, or it was accepted here but not here. Um, you know, the Holy Spirit in the whole church caused the church to recognize the Word of God. And what we say, Brandon, as you know, is the church received the canon. It did not determine it, it did not decide it, it did not make it, it received it. God's people recognized God's voice. As Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, my sheep know my voice, they will not listen to another. And no church, and this is really important for the canon, no church in the history of the New Testament period has ever had a different canon in the New Testament than what we have. I'm talking Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant. We all have the same 27 books of the New Testament. Nobody has anything different. Isn't that amazing? To me, that's amazing that all these different groups that we fight and we differ on so many things, we all say these 27 books and these alone are the New Testament canon. The Apocrypha, which many of you may be thinking of, is not New Testament. The Apocrypha is before Christ. That's Old Testament. That's Jewish stuff. When the Catholics say the book of Tobit and Judith and Maccabees and others are scripture, they're talking about, you know, 100 B.C., 200 B.C., 300. Nothing to do with the New Testament. That's Old Testament. So, yeah, we, we have a different Old Testament. We, we, what technically would be called intertestamental apocryphal books. But the Catholics are right with us on the New Testament. So are the Orthodox, so is everyone else. Only heretical groups have different New Testaments, the Book of Mormon. Okay? Uh, that's really, that's so crucial and important. You know, and no Christian church has ever for a moment thought. And you can look in the councils, you can look in the Muratorian canon and all the old documents that we have. No Christian group has ever for a moment thought the Gospel of Thomas might be Scripture. When I talk about certain books were debated, they're real Christian books. You know, the Dia Tesseron, uh, the Teaching of the Twelve, early books that were good, written by Christians, not Gnostic heresies, Gospel of Thomas, written well into the second century. No Christian group ever thought, gee, I wonder if Thomas is scripture. They're like, this book's a piece of garbage. It's not scripture. It's an obvious forgery. The, you know, the, the epistles of, of Barnabas and all that stuff. Gnostic forgeries were never considered. Real good Christian books sometimes were considered, but the church as a whole recognized, no, this wasn't scripture for one of those three reasons. So, what else? Denny Baker, I know you've been waiting and I've been putting you off. Many of us have been blessed by growing up in a reformed church. Uh, that's not been my history and it's not your history. Uh, can you speak maybe uh, you, you uh, raised a Lutheran church 
Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I was, it's funny because, you know, Luther is one of the reformers and we in the reformed church love Luther. Um, but in the Lutheran church, at least in the ELCA, the liberal Lutheran church, I want to say that because there's, you know, good uh, conservative, evangelical, godly, Bible-believing Lutherans, Missouri Synod, I believe Wisconsin Synod. You know, so we don't want to say, when we talk about reform, we're not going to say, well, the PCUSA, right? Uh, we're not going to say that. But they're Presbyterian. But they're not our Presbyterian. So I want to be real careful when I say that with the Lutheran. But I grew up in the liberal Lutheran church would be like the mainline Presbyterian church, right? And so, you know, we'd have 10-minute sermons, be a nicer person, pet a puppy today, you know, I mean, that's, that was the gist of the messages. Um, I mean, it was sad. Uh, the ministers didn't believe. And that's what happened in the main lines. The ministers don't believe. They take these vows, they read the scriptures, they don't believe. Many people, I believe thousands, millions of Americans are in mainline churches who are real Christians. And the church has left them. They haven't left the church. The church has left them. They don't believe. Okay, so that was me in the Lutheran church. But I was an unbeliever, okay? I was an unbeliever, so I was in the right place. I was in a church that didn't believe, and I didn't believe. Um, and church was something you did because you were a good person. You know, you go to church on Sunday, and then you try not to get caught with the things you're doing during the week. But when I got converted, okay, and, and I'm not going to go into that, but when I got converted and I become a Christian and I'm saved, and now I want to follow Jesus and I believe the Bible is the word of God, and immediately I saw that my Lutheran church didn't believe that. And immediately I didn't want to go there anymore. Um, and, it, you know, it was just they didn't believe. They weren't like-minded. And, and one of the first groups I saw was on Cornerstone Television. I didn't know anybody. But on Cornerstone Television, I saw these people talking about the Bible as if it was alive, as if you could actually live by it and trust in it and if it spoke to you today. And I'm like, wow, those were the first Christians I saw to this day. I mean, R.C. says the same thing in his testimony. It was charismatics that converted him, that God used to convert him. But I saw this, right? So I see this. And, and um, uh, to, get, to, to get specific, uh, Denny, on the Lord's Supper, I don't think I ever really believed. I didn't believe in Christ. So what the Lutheran, you know, doctrine of the Lord's Supper was, it didn't matter to me either. You know, when I became a Christian, I mean, it was years before I really even thought about the Lord's Supper. I wanted to repent of my sins. I wanted to believe in Jesus. I wanted to understand his word. You know, in what way Christ may or may not be present in the Lord's Supper was way down the line for me. Uh, and really didn't even come into my mind until I wrote a paper at seminary about Luther's view of the Supper. And I began to wrestle with the different modes of presence and, and so forth. But to me, the Reformed faith, what, what, what brought me, so I became a Christian. I wasn't Reformed. But what brought me to the Reformed faith were certain doctrines. The first one, when I heard Charles Stanley preach on Cornerstone, um, about uh, he had a sermon just called Eternal Security. And it was the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And he defended it well. That you, you know, if you're converted, you can't lose your salvation. And that was the first truth that you know, I understood in the, that we would call Reformed. You know, um, specifically Reformed. One of the five points of Calvinism. But when I remember when Dr. Stanley preached it, that like I don't know if I believed it because he preached it or when he preached it, it confirmed what I already believed. But so God was working on me as I was reading scripture. And as I was reading scripture, and that's all I did. I just read the Bible over and over again, cover to cover. Multiple times, cover to cover. It would take a year about, and I would, and I would highlight things and I was you know, underlining things. That's what I saw other people do, but I was doing that too. And trying to learn the Bible. And people started to say to me, you're a Calvinist. 
because of what I was saying about Scripture. And I, I was offended by that because Calvin was the horrible person who said, you know, we're all robots and nobody can make decisions. That's what I thought. That's what I had heard about Calvin. So, you know, my reform journey was just reading the Bible and beginning to see certain things that didn't make sense. I remember writing in, in, in fact, I still have it in one of my study Bibles in the margin, you know, where Jesus says, you know, uh, seeing that, that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not see, you know, and, and that should go and shut their eyes. And I write in my Bible, it sounds as if Jesus didn't want these people to be saved, question mark. That, that, that I had no place for that in my, in my theology at the time. Jesus is trying desperately to save everybody. And if only they would make the right decision, you know, but he's trying everything he can. He's up there, you know, and, and that was my view of God, sort of. And it was when I got to the place, well, no, God's sovereign. And God actually doesn't choose to save everybody, you know, and to, to begin to see that, you know, and that's why people started to say I was a Calvinist. But uh, anyway, um, next. Yes, Esther. I'm sorry, the last part again? Oh, um, is it all right to tell the Lord's people not to say the Lord's name in vain? I, I think it can be. I think it, it's, um, it's not something that, like you're in a restaurant, you hear somebody at the table over, you know, oh, Jesus Christ, and, you know, and, they, and they curse his name. You know, I think if you would try to tell everybody that you hear say that, uh, um, again, I think you're going to put a burden on yourself that um, you shouldn't do. Um, because when we rebuke somebody in sin, we have to have a relationship with them at some level, right? Um, you don't read anybody in Scripture going up to strangers and saying, hey, these are the sins you're committing, stop it. Um, there's a relationship because, you know, the, the response has to be out of love. The Christian loves his neighbor. Um, and so if you have a friend and you're in a conversation, they take the Lord's name in vain, I think it's entirely appropriate to say, you shouldn't do that. You know, you're taking the Lord's name in vain. If it's a fellow believer, absolutely. Fellow believer, absolutely. Hey, brother, did you just take the Lord's name in vain? You know, um, but uh, again, um, because that's something that, you know, believers don't want to do, right? You know, there is a sense, though, in which if a believer sins against you, you don't always call a believer out on every sin either. Because, again, that love covers a multitude of sins. You know, if we began to pick at everybody in this church, hey, you did the following things to me. You did, the, you know, we want to forgive one another when they sin against us. But, but blasphemy um, is against God. And, you know, it's something that we all do in our hearts to a certain degree. Not blasphemy the Holy Spirit, but, you know, not reverently keeping God's name holy. We all do that in our hearts. But when we do it out loud, we should be able to help one another get over that. And that should be something that, that you can tell your friends for sure, your Christian friends. So, anything else? Oh, we got plenty of time. Yes, Dan. So be Wow, okay. That's good. I gotta have some coffee for this one. 
Um, well, one of the things that, um, that we'll need to begin with is a lot of times in all three, a person can be sincere, right? Most heretics, I think, are sincere. I don't think too many of them are trying to distort the word of God. They believe what they're saying about the word of God is true. So to take Mormon, Mormonism, you know, the Trinity is not, there is no Trinity. God, there are three gods. They'll try to just justify that from scripture. They'll try to show you uh, that from scripture. But we would consider that heresy, okay? Um, and heresy, I would say, is any false doctrine that rises to the level of either teaching a false view of salvation justified by works. Uh, the reformers condemned Roman Catholicism in its official doctrine because it's a false gospel. If you add works to faith, you can't be saved. So that's heresy. Heresy is going to destroy salvation, is going to cause uh, the gospel to not be the gospel, or God to not be God, which in effect is the same thing. And so all you know, Christian churches would reject Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, and, and her heresies like them, because what do they all do? They all deny the Trinity, which is who God is. One God in three persons. The Jehovah's Witnesses say, no, Jesus was created. God, he was God's first creation. That's a heresy. That's not just an error. Okay? So to, to um, an, an error that rises to the level of it's a different God, it's a different way of salvation. That's heresy. Um, what was the, so the two categories, error? Was it error or false teaching? False teaching. Okay, uh, and, and there can be, uh, so false teaching would be, you know, would not, you know, there's false teaching that's not heresy. Arminianism, all right, um, we would say is not heresy. Now, there's a sense in which if you were absolutely consistent in your Arminianism, you would rise to the level of heresy, but almost nobody is. Uh, that is, okay, what, what I mean by Arminianism, that you have to choose Jesus before he changes your heart, okay? Um, that God leaves it up to you. Now, we believe in the Reformed faith that that's not true because God, you know, foreknows whom he predestines, he predestines whom he calls and whom he calls. He justifies everyone whom he calls effectually is justified. So when you were dead in your transgressions and sin, God made you alive. You didn't do anything. You were dead. So we believe that. That's sovereign election, sovereign uh, regeneration, rather. That you were dead and God, without anything from you, without checking with you, without asking you, you were dead. You know, you can't ask a dead person, would you like to be alive? You're dead. God made you alive. And again, spiritually, what does that mean? You're convicted of your sins now and you believe in Jesus now. That's what a spiritually alive person does. Now you choose him. Now you believe in him. We, we're all for that. You exercise your will. And it's free in the sense that God isn't making you do it. You want to do it. You want to believe. You want to repent. But God has done it in you. The Arminian would say, no, you have to make that choice. Now, at the same time, and I have a lot of Arminian friends, they'll say, oh, yeah, you're spiritually dead. Dead in sins. But you have to choose. Now, that's a contradiction. And that's why we would say it's a false teaching. But it's not 
heresy in the sense that they, they're still going to say it's by grace alone, it's by faith alone, your works don't do anything. Again, consistently, you, but what about that choice you had to make first? You know, but that's where the inconsistency is. So false teaching is going to be inconsistent, but, it, but it's going to affirm the, the core truths, who God is, way of salvation. Uh, error are things that real Christians and um, um, divide over that are... Um, there's a sense in which, yeah, sure, we're going to still, like if somebody that's an error, I'm going to stay is, is believing a false teaching, but there's a difference, you know, uh, at a certain level. Like Arminianism is a more fundamental false teaching than the mode of baptism, right? There are people, there are people who believe you have to be immersed or you're not baptized. I think that's an error, but in a sense, it's also true. You certainly can be immersed and be baptized, and I don't have any problems with that. It's only because they're making it exclusive. You know, uh, or, you know, the fact of pedo-baptism and believer's baptism. We all understand baptism the same way. Baptism is a sign and seal. Baptism does not regenerate. Baptism does not make you alive spiritually. It's a picture of it if you believe in Jesus. It's a picture of showing you're forgiven, you're washed. But you have to believe to receive that, right? And God has to, so we, 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 we agree with what baptism is, we agree that it's necessary, it's commanded. We agree that it's in the Trinity. The only thing that's different there is the timing. Right? The Baptists say it has to be when you're older and you profess your faith. Uh, Presbyterians say, no, because your parents profess. We, we still say a profession is necessary. Even that's true. A lot of Presbyterians don't understand that, but it's true. We would never baptize anybody in that sanctuary unless somebody professed faith. Your child can't be baptized unless it's the child of a believer. What, what are those vows? Their parents are professing faith. That's why we ask the parents' vows. So there's got to even be a profession of faith. But again, the, the, the error comes where we think the Baptists are erring because Abram was commanded to put the sign on his children before they could profess faith. And we don't believe the New Testament's ever changed that. So we would say that's the same. So I think error is... Um, is more things like that that real Christians can agree on that really rise to the level of, um, you know, we're not denying ever any major doctrine either, but we're looking at different things like when do we baptize somebody. So I saw a hand back there. Yes. Yes. Okay, let me get into 1 Corinthians 11 here and look at that passage real quick. Um, in general, I can certainly answer it, but I'd like to speak to it from the text. Um, so this is where we find this talk doctrine. 1 Corinthians 11, where we have head coverings. Um, and we know that this came in to the culture um, in the Near East... After the time of Abraham, it's more of a belief historically. Uh, don't hold me to this, but I'm pretty sure it was a Persian. We looked to the, the Persians were doing this with women. Um, we don't see, I mean, there's no head covering, you know, for Sarah and Abraham. I pointed this out in the text. This is how Abram could be afraid of her beauty. I mean, if she had this head covering on and, you know, the, the burqa, you know, nobody's going to see her. He doesn't have to worry about her beauty, but she didn't. She dressed beautifully and you could see uh, there were no, and that, that's one of the critics point. Oh, the Bible can't be true because why would he worry about Sarah's heavy? Because they commanded her. No, there were no head coverings at that time because of the Persians. So I think, you know, my, my short answer is going to be that that came in via the culture, that God never commanded that, and that we see that as a cultural thing uh, that has ended. 
or that might be different in different cultures. There may be a time where you're in a culture of Christians where it's considered inappropriate for a woman to not have a head covering, and so you would put one on to not cause your brother to stumble, but you would make a distinction between that and what God actually commands you to do. You know, and I, I would look at what Paul says about eating meat. I'm not going to eat meat if it causes my brother to stumble. But when I want to eat meat and I'm not around that guy, I'm going to eat meat. You know? And so to recognize you know, what, what is a normative biblical command versus what is cultural. The majority of reformed exegetes have said that's cultural. So it, is, it's, it doesn't apply across the board. But I do know people, and, and, um, and I remember when I was studying under R.C., uh, down in um, Fort Lauderdale at Knox Seminary, we were in class, and uh, you know he was the professor. I got to take a few classes by Dr. Sproul, and he asked a woman one time to open the. I always asked a student to open in prayer, and there was a woman student, and he asked her to open in prayer uh, the class, and then he said, and then like she she hesitated, and he goes, "Oh, I'm sorry, Barbara, you don't have your head covering." He goes, well, would, "Would you put your hand on your head and pl- pray, please?" You know, and. There was a chuckle, and she ended up pulling out something and putting it on. So clearly he knew this gal. He knew she had a personal conviction, and he didn't want her to violate it. Um, And I've seen people in our church before, not recently, but I remember we had some that used to come when we were in, yeah, in this sanctuary. I was going to point over there. That sat, I remember even sat in the back left. Maybe it was a special service, and, and there were a couple women who had head coverings on. So there are still Christians who would believe that. Uh, I would say that would rise to that error level that we t- that Dan talked about, the error, false teaching, heresy. I think they're, they're wrong to believe that, but I'm not going to, if that's their conviction, you know, like there are Christians who won't drink. I think they're wrong to believe it's wrong to drink, certainly wrong to get drunk. But if they choose to not drink, they're certainly free to do that. You know, so I think the head covering thing, if you really are a woman and you're convinced, convicted that you should do that, then you should do it. You know, you, should, you can't violate your conscience. Um, so that's what I would say, that that, um, that that particular manifestation is cultural. How about one more? Depending. Yes, Eric. Yes. Good. I've actually preached on this a couple of times when it's come up. Um, when I was in Colossians, because one of the verses is Colossians, uh, speak to one another in Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And I was at the seminary, both for my MDiv and for um, my uh, doctorate. So I've studied for a long time under Covenanter ministers, and some of my best friends are Covenanters. And I personally love singing the Psalms. In fact, when I came to the church, and Bailey wanted this too, we wanted to incorporate more psalmody into our singing. And so we actually got it to the point where we wanted at least one psalm in every service. And you'll notice that we have that. Uh, it might not be out of the Psalter, but it'll be in the hymn. Many of our hymns in the Red Hymnal are actually just psalms. Um, and so you'll see that. You'll see that it's the psalm. Um, so uh, I think... You know, uh, again, this would be what I would call an error in our Reformed brothers who are in the Covenanters and a few other denominations who believe, the issue here, guys, is uh, that they believe that God commands that you can only in public worship sing the 150 canonical psalms. So to sing anything else would be sinful. Now they recognize, again, they would look at us graciously and, and see that as only at the level of error. We, we don't know any better, or we would certainly change our practice. Um, and so the answer is, you know, the question is, well, what, what, is, what does the Bible say? 
My short answer, and, and, and I wrestled with this. I wrestled with this, this to the point when I was in the PCA church that I was attending for several weeks. Robin can testify because I was going, I mean, I was like, and all kind of doctrines. I mean, the Sabbath was a big one for me too. You know, one week I was complete Sabbatarian. The next week I was, every day is the Sabbath. And so like I'm learning and changing. And, um, but there were maybe, maybe more than a month or two months I didn't know if I should be singing this, the hymns in my church because I was really being convicted. I mean, Jerry O'Neill, the president of seminary, personally, because they're very good at trying to get some of the reform guys in. Um, you know, one of my best friends uh, at seminary, C.J. Williams, who's a minister in the Covenanters, teaches at the seminary, started off in the PCA. And he was convicted in seminary about that doctrine. He left and went into the Covenanters. And I, I mean, I, I sat down in Jerry's office. He gave me a book. We met over the book. I mean, they were trying to get me. And I was trying to find the truth. I really was. I wasn't trying to like, I had never heard of this. I certainly, I'd read the Bible over and over again. I had the highest Bible exam score of anyone entering the seminary the year I entered. Before I even wanted to, even knew I was going to be in the ministry. But I knew the Bible better than, again, on that 150 point exam, I missed less than anybody. Guys who knew they were ministers going into the ministry, Bible majors, they did more poorly than I did on the Bible. So I, I, and I had never saw that in scripture, right? Never heard of it, never saw it. So I wanted to wrestle with it. Um, the short answer is, again, and I, I, could, I could go through the scriptures. I really could I'd give you a long argument. The short answer is um, the Bible doesn't command it. Therefore, uh, they're wrong to require it. The Bible never commands exclusive a cappella psalmody. Now, um, uh, the Old Testament doesn't command it. Um, they'll assume it for the Old Testament. They'll say the, the Psalms is the hymn book of Israel. It's God's hymn book. He gave it to them. Um, but Israel never taught that. You know, you can read in uh, Kings where so, uh, um, Solomon um, wrote, uh, uh, there are other Psalms that Solomon wrote. Um, uh, and if, in fact, just think of it, I mean, these are, these are not proven arguments, but if... The Psalms are the only thing you're allowed to sing. Then up until David, what did they sing? You know, from Abraham to David, was there no singing? Okay, Moses wrote Psalm 90. We got that one. What are we going to sing this week? Psalm 90. <laughs> Psalm 90. Psalm 90. Psalm 90. Um, now, what they'll do is, so, you know, we see, you know, uh, Deborah's song, you know, we see Miriam's song, Moses' song, all these other songs that aren't psalms. That, that their doctrine is you can't sing them unless they're psalms. Um, their answer to that is, well, those are exceptions because they're scripture. That's not enough. You've got to prove it. You know, that seems to be normative because it happens over and over again, all through the canon. God will do some deliverance. There'll be people bringing out the song, but they can only sing it that one time and no one can ever sing it again because it's not one of the 150 psalms. You know, at Geneva, Calvin's practice, Dr. Spear admitted this in class, was, I love it the way he said it, 80% exclusive a cappella psalmist, which makes him 100% in our camp. Because if he allowed anything else, he didn't buy their doctrine. All right? To sing the Lord's Prayer. That's not allowed. That's not a psalm. Can't sing the Lord's Prayer either. Uh, many of the Psalms are prayers. A prayer of David. A prayer of Moses. You know, they talk about Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and the three words being in the Septuagint. Actually, you look that up in the Septuagint, and it's very rare that uh, uh, they're, they're mentioned at all. Um, uh, one or two of the categories, I can't remember. But uh, to go to Colossians 3. 
Um, so Colossians 3.16 and, um, and Ephesians are the verses. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. If you look at that text, and if you look at the text in Ephesians, it has nothing to do with public worship. It's all about Christian conduct in life. And so this idea, you know, let the word of Christ dwell in you in, in, in teaching and admonishing one another. So this is in your life, in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. So this is, a, this is life, right? So uh, this, uh, uh, this is not talking about public worship. And those are the two places where they say it's commanded. And if it's commanded, then you can't add to it and everything else. That's not a command for worship. That's a command for life. This is how we should be to one another. We should be speaking. And it's even speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And it's actually in the Ephesians 1. Um, it, it's not even that. It's in your hearts speaking. In your hearts speaking. So there's nothing even out loud being said. So I could go further into it. But um, again, I mean, I love the Covenanters. I could live in a church that sung only the psalms because the psalms teach Jesus. What I can't say is, you have to do it that way. So, well, I'm sorry, we, we do have to wrap it up. But uh, this was fun. Maybe we'll do it again. So uh, if we do, I'll let you know. And if you want to do it again, let me know. Because I'd like to know if this was something that was worthwhile. But let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. How we pray, Lord, that we would be growing in you. And that you would cause your word to grow in us. Father, help me. And help each one of us to do our part to bless this church and to glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.